welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Will Davis, the lookalike of Avril Lavigne, who replaced her in 2014. And I'm Leah Richards, an Atlantean who really wants to build you a pyramid. What could these things possibly have in common? Apart from being nonsense, they're nonsense which people actually believe. They are conspiracy theories out there with websites. Whole websites. That's what you need to lend something credence. If it's on the internet, you can trust it. Like we are. We're on the internet and you can trust us, right? Oh no. Oh yes, it's time for some brand new science in your ears. Before we get to the trust, we're going to quickly revisit a story from last episode. You might remember that the business prize from the Ig Nobel Prizes 2018 went to those researchers who looked into whether or not having a, quote, digital voodoo doll would help their workers get a little bit of the frustration out of them. Now we have new research from Binghampton University to say you don't need to practice the dark arts through a digital screen to get the results you need. You could just... Be nice to your employees. I mean, you can, especially if you are an employee, you can practice the dark arts if you feel the need to. I'm not going to stop you. We're not going to get in the way of that. Please do as your dark master commands. But if you're an employer, you can get really very good results out of just caring a little bit about the part where your employees are human beings. This research from Binghamton University is looking at two groups. You've got 200 full-time working adults in the United States and nearly 1,000 members of the Taiwanese military to look at the effect of different leadership styles, including authoritarianism-dominant leadership, benevolence-dominant leaderships, and a, quote, classical paternalistic leadership. Those leadership styles, respectively, make task completion the focus, make the well-being of subordinates the focus, or meet in the middle with about an equal focus on getting things done and also going home at the end of the day and having a nice life. And it turns out, even across the culturally very different groups of Americans with pretty standard customer service type admin-y bog-standard jobs and members of the Taiwanese military. Authoritarian leadership style is always, always worse than any leadership style where you give even a half a about the people who work for you. An opening quote from one of the authors, Cho Yotsai, assistant professor of management at Binghamton University's School of Management, being benevolent is important because it can change the perception your followers have of you. If you feel that your leader or boss actually cares about you, you may feel more serious about the work you do for them. And I certainly, in various jobs across my life, have felt valued and not valued by my managers. That has certainly impacted the amount of care that I put into my work and give back to the job, because as far as I'm concerned, you give what you get. Yep, I would say that's consistent with my experience as well in the jobs where it was clear that I was just a person there to do a task rather than a person. I didn't put as much of myself into the work. As Sai himself continues, subordinates and employees are not tools or machines that you can just use. The attention of Jeff Bezos. Automation has no soul, but your workers do. They are human beings and deserve to be treated with respect. I'm going to CC in every single employer who stops their employees unionising. Elon Musk! But now we've got that socialism out of our system, we haven't. It's in there for good. We can move on to some of the new news. I just really care about people having a roof over their head and food to eat. Do well and be well. Employees and employees alike. Be and do well. Do good. It's not that difficult to care about people. But out of all the things you care about, maybe they aren't always the best way to be spending your time and efforts and energy. Maybe they're not even true. 
Feedback trumps hard evidence, according to University of California Berkeley, who have found that rather than actually confronting people's ideas and then saying, huh, yeah, you're right, that is a valid opinion, if you really want to dig into something that's wedged in a person's brain, you've got to make them feel it. So th this actually is less about making someone feel their wrongness than it is about when we're told that we're right. Even if we don't know why we're right, it increases our confidence. So you can end up developing and sticking to completely incorrect beliefs if something that you have made a link to with it, something that is similar enough for you to have connected them, has been confirmed as correct to you. It's a friend patting on the shoulder and saying, yeah, you know what, you're right. Maybe the mountains are a lie. Maybe there's a giant ice shelf around a flat earth. Maybe climate change is a hoax made up by the Chinese to, what was it again, affect the American automotive industry? Yeah, probably. Some kind of nonsense. The way this has been tested by a team of researchers at UC Berkeley they sat down lots of participants with a test where they were told to identify from a collection of coloured shapes which one qualified as a daxi with two X's, a make-believe object invented by the researchers for the purpose of the experiment. Now, they haven't said if there actually were qualifying features that made something a daxi. It's not so important because the participants weren't told what it was. They simply had to pick from a collection of coloured shapes on a screen which one they thought might be a daxi, and they were told whether they were right or wrong, and asked how certain they were about that answer. And apparently for most people, if you've been right once in the last five instances of trying to pick out the daxi, you're much more confident in your answer, even if it's not based on any sort of consistent characteristics. I'd really like to see how this varies based on what sort of people were taking the test. I'd, I'd quite like to have a go at it myself and see if I was prone to that cognitive bias as well, because it's one of those things that intuitively you want to be like, I'm a logical and rational person, I wouldn't fall for that, but I don't know. Well, maybe we can pull it up later because this is published in the journal, and I love that they've got this journal with this name for research about cognitive neuroscience. It's called Open Mind. Is that about like an open access publishing and brains, or about widening one's consciousness overall? But in the words of Tim Mitchin, if you open your mind too much, your brain will fall out. So don't open it so far that the flat earthers can get in. And this is something which I do care about. This is something which my entire job and hobbies centre around is science communication, the idea of having people and facts and developments and invention and the way that they all intersect with each other. And it is an established interest of yours that conspiracy theories are the thing that people get really, really stuck on. Very much. So having some research that says, here's how it happens, and it's definitely something which we've all expected for some time, that the echo chamber effect amplifies and cements people's positions, especially, especially if they are wrong ones. And it's one of the prime things that, for example, anti-fash organisations focus on is essentially stopping fascists from speaking, because as long as they can speak, they can reach and confirm the beliefs of other fascists, and that's, that's not helpful to anybody. You can see an entire Twitter screed where I went off on one on the Eureka Nerd channel, that's Eureka Nerdcast on twitter.com, about how being right is not enough when confronting conspiracy theories like Flat Earth, like vaccine denialists, that you have to be 
a human. You have to connect with the humanity underlying whatever's led someone to this decision. Because as irrational as the belief itself is, each step that has led them to forming and grasping onto that belief is quite rational. You can't just look at the beginning and the end of here is a human, now they don't believe in climate change. It's all those little steps along the way which lead you on the widening gyre out of what actually happens in the world. And in the modern world, the way in which people communicate with each other and with the world at large has definitely changed our access to information, the way that we participate in news and debate and discussion and conspiracy theories as well. There's been such a resurgence in objectively bad ideas thanks to well, having a platform in which you can reach out and connect and yeah. affirm the bad ideas of other people on different parts of the planet. Yeah, I would say that it's basically certain that there's not any more bad ideas, but it's easier to get them out there. Thanks, Internet. So many things it's good at and so many things it's bad at. And most of the things it's bad at have to do with the people who are there. But this does lead us on to the next piece of research from Genetic Engineering News, published in Cyberpsychology, Behaviour and Social Networking, which is looking at the use of the microblogging platform Twitter specifically to spread or debunk conspiracy theories. And if you've used Twitter, you know what's going on out there regarding people's sharing bad ideas and saying this is the truth and if you don't believe me, you are Satan. Now this press release states that the main finding of an analysis of 25,000 tweets and the characteristics of the social networks used to disseminate them is that tweets intended to propagate conspiracy theories, in this instance specifically about the 2015-2016 Zika virus outbreak, were more decentralised than messages trying to debunk those. It's interesting that they use the Zika virus outbreak as the case study in this part and saying that the emergence of conspiracy theories surrounding it are decentralised rather than, let's call it Cure, a curative fact platform in the middle, surrounded by pockets of kind of this viral spread, decentralised in such a way that they are connecting without going through a central hub of news. Running rings around the CDC or NHS website saying, by the way, guys, take preventative measures when travelling to areas where there has been an outbreak. So it's the M25 of badly sourced news. Only, you know, efficient. I was leading up to a whole virus, antivirus, like, biology thing, but sure, yeah, we can, we can go with the roads too. Yeah, I mean, I did click through to the article, which is pleasantly readable as academic articles go, so good job there, guys. I didn't actually realise that there were conspiracy theories about Zika virus, but apparently there were a whole bunch of people who were absolutely convinced that it was an intentionally released biological warfare agent. Funnily enough, the same people who will believe that an outbreak like Zika or Ebola outbreaks from the last couple of years have been engineered by some kind of power or elite are the same people who won't get vaccines to prevent having horrible diseases. Yeah, because the vaccine's probably got some of the disease in it, right? And as we all know, a dead child is better than one with a developmental disorder like autism. <laughs> it's one of those things that people should not try and start a fight with me about. Remember that. We'll come back to it later. But first of all, in all of the social metering that we do in this modern age, in all of the nights that we spend sat in bed looking at our phones, scrolling past, 
chances are your sleep has been affected at some point by modern technology. I know the first thing I do when I get up is look at my phone, and it's the last thing I look at before I go to sleep. We shared a story on Twitter and Facebook just the other day about how having access to broadband internet will probably give you worse sleep. But there is opportunity in all of this mess, in all of this madness, for somebody to make a quick buck, and that's what the University of Notre Dame are investigating. They claim that capitalizing on sleep-wake cycles can drastically increase digital ad profits from social media. So as you might expect, our level of alertness and our ability to engage with things varies throughout the day. Our working memory is at its very highest in the morning, at its lowest in the early afternoon, and about in between in the early evening. You might think, oh, well, that could be used to help us be happier and more productive in our work, or to learn better. But instead, this is some research about how to harness that for the best traction with your adverts. It's using their powers for bad, not for good. It'll probably end up being for bad, even though, like, telling people about a product they might be interested in isn't necessarily bad. But yeah, it's sad that the focus of this is on marketing. It's it's quite interesting, nonetheless. So the findings are... Broadly speaking, that you're more likely to engage with posts containing high arousal negative information, including anger, stress, anxiety or fear, in the morning. Engage most with content which has been boosted, so you've actually paid the platform to advertise it in the early afternoon, when your working memory is at its absolute lowest, so the boosted posts, which on, I think, every platform have to be marked as having been sponsored or whatever because they look different than the other content around them you're more likely to engage with it at that point when your working memory is just going oh i'm having a nap you're vulnerable they'll get in and you're most likely to engage with stuff that involves actually more thinking about so posts about your science thing or op-ed pieces in the later afternoon And I've got to admit, as a, I suppose we are content creators on a small platform that is podcasts, because we're not big at the moment. Wait for it. (laughs) He's got dreams. You know, we're not doing serial numbers. We're not out there with no such thing as a fish or whatever. But it's definitely something which I have found myself getting more and more invested and interested in of how do I maximise each of these podcasts potential if i am posting it online when is the best time to post it there are tools you can find out when are all of my followers online when is the best time to auto schedule a post through hootsuite so it can be out on lots of different channels all at once and there is so much money so much energy and effort from so many people being invested into when is the best time to sell either sell my opinion sell my product sell the platform that i'm on and it's I don't know when we all signed up for this. I I don't think I agreed, unless it was in the terms and conditions (laughs) and who reads those. But someone is cracking into the psychology of it, then I guess we should all be spending more time looking at the Journal of Marketing. They're the guys who know. They'll also tell you about the brand personality of rocks. If you would like to download our new friendly rock app on VR... We don't have one of those, although maybe you should get in touch with some developers and see if you can work it up. Hey, Oculus, let us know. (laughs) 
I, I am interested in this article about that the sort of gut feelings that social media managers were relying on for when was best to post were actually good high traffic times because you know those are based on well I'm a human being I will check what's going on with everybody first thing in the morning I'll dip into it again on my coffee break or in the after lunch slump but findings about the sort of content people are more likely to engage in at those times is the real novel bit of information here and maybe this is just me and the way that I am processing this information but I'm definitely going to be looking at my Twitter timeline my Facebook timeline all my different social media apps in the morning in the afternoon with a critical eye of oh yeah they are definitely pushing simple things scary things emotive things early on or I'll be looking for it I'll be keeping an eye out and if that <laughs> is what's happening then I guess congratulations to Vamsi Kanuri assistant professor in marketing at the University of Notre Dame's Mendoza College of Business you got it and while we're talking about social media and accessing people on social media and what with conversations we've had with real life friends in the last few weeks, how well is science communication via social media actually working for us? For us, for Eureka Nerd, for you and me, sat here on our sofa talking into these microphones, it's getting us out there, it's getting us heard. There are definitely numbers on the screen. But I will say, we're not the sort of people whose Twitter following this study is focusing on. The thing is, I don't know who exactly we are reaching. We do tend to follow and be followed predominantly by other science communicators and other people in science and education, because, well, we all like science and like learning, because that's just who we are. Having had a similar train of thought, Isabel Cote, SFU Professor of Marine Ecology and Conservation, who is a active user of Twitter for science communication, wondered, are my followers mainly scientists or non-scientists? Was I preaching to the choir or singing from the rooftops? So, Cote and a collaborator, Emily Darling, analysed the active Twitter accounts of over 100 ecology and evolutionary biology faculty members at 85 institutions across 11 countries to figure out, are we reaching people who are in reach? Other academics? Scientists, conservation agencies, donors? Or is it outreach? Are we reaching anybody else on Earth? The outreach category does include science educators and journalists, which, that's a grey area, I'd say. They do sound like they are stakeholders in the field of science education and communication to start with. Especially if you're talking about a science journalist, you'd hope they'd be following some scientists. But I can see why it might be the grey area. And what Cote and Darling found was there seems to be sort of a threshold that scientists and science channels have in terms of passing between inreach and outreach. Those with fewer than 1,000 Twitter followers primarily reach other scientists. Scientists with more than 1,000 followers have a few different types, including those in the outreach area. And this is where I would argue that there needs to be more follow-up and more expansion, because going with journalists, educators, scientists, science communicators and academics... That's not all of science communication by far. There's so many media channels. I mean, look at everything that comes out around Shark Week from Discovery Channel. They're huge with millions of followers. And increasingly focusing on sharing actual science rather than shocking shark facts. And other things like I f of science or science news. So many other sources for information are still factual and rigorous. Not strictly academic, but are still doing the job of science communication. 
And it's very interesting that for the people who are tweeting from academia, there's this thousand people tipping point. I would be interested to know if the threshold is lower, if you're a science news thing or specifically a science educator, because those are groups that they've put in the outreach category. And yeah, I think it would be very useful to all of us to know that if someone wanted to take this research a little bit further. And I think it really does come back to what we were talking about earlier with the echo chamber, with conspiracy theories spread about negative information with the Zika virus, that same banding about of ideas can also be limited within the identified in-reach groups, that if we are all agreeing with each other. And it is definitely an important consideration that if someone is only talking to other people in academia, they might form beliefs about the wider world which aren't really helpful. They might be going, oh, well, everyone's vaccinating their kids nowadays. No one believes in that nonsense anymore, right? They do. You can't act on that if you haven't got the information in the first place. Now, if you're worried that it is all doom and gloom because of social media, you're right, but we've got one more story before we let you off the hook, which is coming back to something which we've talked about before, but there's a few more facts coming our way from Cardiff University, asking whether artificial intelligences could actually end up developing prejudice and discrimination in and of themselves without any human input. We have discussed before that if we are teaching an AI based on a prejudiced set of information. So, for example, there is a quirk of certain translation software that if you feed in a phrase in a language which doesn't have gendered pronouns, I think Hungarian is the example I've seen used, that says the person we are referring to is an engineer or the person we are referring to is a doctor or a teacher or whatever, then the translation algorithm will spit out a gendered pronoun based on the information it knows about how often that gendered pronoun is connected with the profession given. So it will tell you, even though the input language was they are an engineer, the output language will tell you he is an engineer, even if the input language is they are a teacher, the output language will be she is a teacher. And this turns up with lots of artificial intelligence training. If we're feeding prejudice information in, it'll spit it back out. But can they develop it by themselves? Well, sort of. Now these findings, published in the journal Scientific Reports, which is where you'd hope a lot of scientific reports would end up being published, <laughs> are based on simulations of how similarly prejudiced individuals or virtual agents, the artificial intelligences in this case, form a group and interact with each other. Now, this is a game they've modeled, a game of give and take, where each individual can make decisions as to how much they donate in terms of a virtual wallet to somebody within their group or in a different group based on a reputation score as well as any strategy that they're bringing into the game, which might involve a certain level of prejudice towards outsiders or other groups. And because these agents have a system by which they can learn from one another, they can base their decision off what the next one along has been doing if their winnings from the game have been quite good lately and change their strategies in line with that. They do what their friends are doing. Or they do what those they've been talking to are doing because my absolute favourite bit of this, my absolute favourite bit of this is right down the bottom of the press release that a further interesting finding from the study was that under particular conditions, which include more distinct subpopulations being present within a population, it was more difficult for prejudice to take hold. Professor Roger Whittaker, one of the co-authors, 
With a greater number of subpopulations, alliances of non-prejudicial groups can cooperate without being exploited. This also diminishes their status as a minority, reducing the susceptibility to prejudice taking hold. However, this also requires circumstances where agents have a higher disposition towards interacting outside of their group. So the circumstances where this huge team of bots is least likely to develop prejudices is when there's a great diversity of approaches. Of equally empowered subpopulations. And when those subpopulations act together in solidarity with one another. What's not beautiful about that? So when Skynet comes for us all, at least we'll be able to say, hey, they did it as a collective. If they're more likely to reach out and have contact with groups outside their own, they'll maybe talk to us before they decide that we're completely hopeless and need to be destroyed. Please? Well, I wouldn't worry about that too much, because chances are we'll get there first. Because whilst we've gone on and on and on about conspiracy theories and robots and AIs, this is all probably sounding a little bit sci-fi. So let's round off with two quick science facts. Cuts to healthcare are strongly linked to the resurgence of measles, mumps, and rubella. I really recommend reading this one because they've got some fantastic data to work with showing a real direct link between cutting healthcare funding and reduced vaccinations, and in fact a real direct link between increasing healthcare funding and rates of vaccination increasing. Vaccinate your kids. And finally, and this one may strike a little closer to home, many young adults lack financial literacy, economic stability. So donate to us at ko-fi.com forward slash eureka nerd. <laughs> Normally we would run into that a little bit more smoothly with a if you've enjoyed our content and want to help us gain financial literacy and economic stability. Keep paying for hosting and equipment. No, that too. Just help us defray the costs. Then you can choose to donate a coffee. You can also find us on the social media platform of your choice where hopefully you will agree that we're doing some good work and we'll tell you that you're doing good work. Keep it up. Nice job. We'll tell you that at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter.com. If you're really, really wrong, we might tell you that. Um, I can't guarantee unconditional support for your beliefs. Not unconditional, but we'll have like a proper, genuine conversation about it. We'll try to understand exactly where you went wrong. We're nice like that. <laughs> and if you've got any other comments, questions or concerns, you can contact us at Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. And if you want to help other people to find the podcast who have absolutely no connection to you via social media, a really good way of doing that is leaving rates and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. But until next time, may the Atlanteans bring you vast quantities of ancient secret knowledge. And may the lizard people not take it from you. I managed to go all this time talking about conspiracy theories and I didn't mention Time Cube. I'm not going to ask you. Do you want to know about Time Cube? No. If you've stuck around to listen for the end of this podcast and want to know about Time Cube, look up Time Cube. Be ready for some very bad ideas about Time Cube. <laughs> very bad ideas about Time Cube. Like, it starts off fun and games and then we get to the race war. I'm just saying, it's, it's a bad, bad scene. Holy sh**. Ha 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 ha!